I want to get into, uh, to get into Revelation. We're in week five of this series, and I'm just going to bring us up to speed on where we've been. Uh, as I was walking, as I was greeting people, uh, someone came up to me and said, I'm really glad we're doing Revelation. That may not be all of your opinion, but they said, I'm really glad we're doing Revelation. He said, I've always my whole life kind of avoided it because it's kind of confusing, and I just like that we're talking about it. And it is confusing. The truth is, most of the aspects of Revelation that are confusing, I've just skipped over because it's like looking through the fog into the future. Remember how I talked about that? Or looking through frosted glass onto the other side. You can see things, but the details aren't very sharp. But Revelation, if it's doing anything, is an end result story about how God will defeat evil. In fact, that's the very type of literature it is. We've talked every week about how Revelation is apocalyptic literature, meaning that it is meant to reveal God's perspective on history in light of its final outcome. Evil is all around us, and Revelation is trying to give us a perspective on evil in light of its final outcome. The book was written to the church to encourage the church, a suffering church, to continue in the pathway of faithfulness and not compromise. We learned in week two that the book is telling us about God's perspective and from God's perspective that Jesus' death has already gained victory over evil. And in week three, we saw how will you survive the process of ridding the world of evil. And we saw that those who will survive the process of God ridding the world of evil are those who follow in the slain lamb. And then we saw last week that God's judgment always has the purpose of bringing us back to himself, of causing us, of helping us to repent. And it is not God's judgment alone that does this, but it is his judgment mixed with his mercy that leads people to repentance. God's judgment mixed with his mercy. God never takes us to the woodshed and beats us until we're raw and bloody and says, good, now you got what you had coming. He always brings judgment for the purpose of bringing us back to himself. And he brings judgment because of the reality of evil. It is the reality of evil that really we turn our attention to this morning as we turn our attention to the third set of judgments that are found in the book of Revelation. We've studied first the seal judgments, then the, bull, uh, the trumpet judgments, and today we come to the bowl judgments, seven bowl judgments. The bold judgments are unique. It's kind of, uh, they are preceded by seven symbolic images or signs, uh, pictures into the future. Seven symbolic signs. You may not remember this, but if you remember the, the, the seal judgments had six judgments, then it had an interlude where it talked about the 144,000, the army, and then it had the seventh judgment, the day of the Lord comes. The, bold judge, or the trumpet judgments had six trumpet judgments, then an interlude where the two witnesses come on the stage, and then the day of the Lord comes, the seventh trumpet. The seven bold judgments do not follow this pattern. And in fact, I think narratively, or as you look at uh, what John is doing in Revelation, it's to tell us that the bold judgments are a little different. It's bringing things to a climax, almost as like the time, remember in the Old Testament when Joshua led the army of Israel around Jericho one time the first day, second time the second day, one time the second day, and then the seventh day comes and they've been lulled into a pattern and the pattern's different. Seven times around, scream, the city falls. It's the same with the bold judgments. The pattern is not repeated. Now there is a new pattern. 
There are seven symbolic signs, images into the future, followed by the seven bold judgments in direct uh, succession. And the seven bold judgments, as the seven symbolic signs that lead up to it, all are taking us on a journey. And the journey is all about the defeat and final defeat of evil. It's really, I told Aaron Bishop this morning, this text is more judgment-centric than any of the ones we've looked at before. But I hope to, by the end of this sermon, not to leave you in judgment depression, but you'll see by the end how God's judgment in this text brings hope and brings joy. But they are more judgment-centric. And you'll see that there is beauty and love and joy, and then there is judgment and evil and violence. And if you struggle with those aspects, judgment, evil, and violence, you are certainly not alone. I think most of us do. I was talking with one of my friends about this series, and she told me, I don't really like Revelation quite as much. I kind of like the part of Christianity that's about peace, hope, and love, you know? Which, who can't relate to that? One of my favorite theologians, his name's N.T. Wright, he's very, very well-known, He tells a story in his commentary on Revelation where he was riding his bike one day and he had been doing work on Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, which is about judgment and God's wrath. And he said he was riding his bicycle and he was going through inner turmoil, you know, about the wrath of God. And he's riding on his bike and all of a sudden his doctoral tutor rides his bike up to him and says, hey, NT, how are you doing? And he says, Well, to be honest, and who answers like this? Most of us just say, fine, I'm doing fine. But N.T. said, well, to be honest, I'm really struggling with God's wrath. And his tutor said, well, aren't we all? And just paddled away, you know, paddled away cheerfully. I think we all are struggling with God's wrath. But here's the reality of it. It's a reality worth remembering. A reality that we can smile as we hear it, but it isn't really a smiling matter. Christianity teaches that there is evil, and it teaches that humanity brought that evil into existence through rebellion, going against the will and the directives of God. It teaches that God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for that evil. That evil just doesn't dissipate. It must be dealt with. And Christianity tells us that God dealt with this evil by sending his son, Jesus, to take on the penalty of our sin so that we might have salvation. And Christianity also teaches, Revelation teaches it very clearly, that not all will repent of their evil and place their faith in Jesus. I wish they would. But Christianity teaches that not all will do this. Richard Niebuhr, a very famous uh, mid-century, 20th century theologian, said sarcastically, what many in the West probably think about theology and wish was the case. He said that most liberal people in the Western world wish, and by liberal, I'm not making political statement, I'm just making inclusive, you know? Most liberal people think that Christianity should say something like this, that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of Christ without a cross. Did you hear what I said? 
Most people wish that a God without wrath would bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations or through the actions of Christ without a cross. But Christianity does not teach this. Christianity says evil is real and God will judge evil. One of my very favorite quotes, I think about it, I get goosebumps every time I read it, was written by a man who's a Croatian theologian. His name's Miroslav Volf, which I'm sure I pronounced wrong. And Miroslav Volf, who had gone through the terrible suffering in the Balkans, said this about a God of justice and judgment. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And I know this will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief of a refusal in God's ability to judge and his will to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivity, captivities of the liberal mind. God will judge evil. And evil, no matter what your circumstances are, exists. And it will not exist forever. And so the question we come to this morning as we investigate a happy subject, not really, is what does happen? What does happen to those who choose evil? What happens to those who choose evil? As I've already stated, we're going to jump right in. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to summarize. Today I'm not going to read. I'm dealing with five chapters of the Bible. So follow along. I'm going to bring your attention, your eyes, to certain sections of the Scripture. Uh, but follow along with me as I, as I summarize for you. And I try to give you the complete or as complete a picture I, as, I, as I can of what is going on here. But as we look at these seven signs, these seven images into the future, and as we look at the seven bold judgments, in the back of your mind, have that question kind of rolling over your head. What happens to those who choose evil? Our first text comes from Revelation 12, 1 through 17. It is uh, a text about the woman and the dragon. And in Revelation 12, we have introduced something that is something that many of us do not like to think about often, but it is the conflict between dark and evil spiritual forces that are warring for our souls. Dark, evil, we could say demonic, evil forces that are warring for our souls. The image is, again, apocalyptic, meaning it is otherworldly and symbolic. The imagery is of a woman who is pregnant with child, and this child is very important. And there is another character. There's not just the woman and the, child, the unborn child. There is a dragon. And the dragon waits 
underneath the birthing canal. That's the way it's kind of pictured. The birthing canal of the woman so that as soon as the baby is born, instead of going into the kind, friendly arms of a nurse, it will go into the jaws of the dragon. And yet God preserves the baby and protects the woman. And a battle breaks out in heaven, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 12. And in this battle, the dragon has a fight against Michael, who is the archangel of God. I always found this fascinating because when the dark spiritual forces are warring against the divine, in this instance, it is not even God that needs to deign to fight the dragon. It is his archangel, Michael, who commands his armies. And in the heavenlies, in a realm that, according to the way that John is picturing it, I believe, in the realm that we don't see, a battle is going on, a battle that, as the text continues, becomes clear, is a war for our own souls. And this battle goes on, but the dragon and his angels, his minions, which aren't yellow, <laughs> the dragon with his minions is not strong enough to even to fight Michael, the archangel, without God even coming out onto the battlefield. And the great dragon is hurled down to the earth. And he is angry and he is furious and he causes havoc on earth. And what is the, what is the havoc of the dragon? What does it look like on earth? And here's what it looks like. Verse 10. Now the dragon has been hurled down and the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah have come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down, has been defeated. Dark spiritual forces are waging for our soul. And there's lots of ways that we can describe it. And there's lots of ways the scriptures describe it. They describe the dark spiritual forces as liars, liars and deceitful, as those who wait like a hungry lion, prowling, roaring, seeking to devour us. But here, one of the most applicationally easy thing to grab onto, here, the dark spiritual forces are accusing us day and night before God. I think of that picture of Job, and I think of that picture in the Old Testament where the deceiver, Satan, goes before God and God says, have you seen my servant? How wonderful he is. And the deceiver says, yeah, he, anybody would be wonderful if they were blessed the way he is. You see, accuse. And God says, you can take that all away and he still will be faithful. And if you read Job, much suffering he goes under. I sound like Yoda when I said that, didn't I? If you read Job, he goes through intense, intense suffering. And yet he stays faithful, <laughs> not without existential crisis, but faithful. Faithful. But this is what the enemy does, accuses us day and night before God. This battle that goes on in the heavens where the deceiver, Satan, the devil, the dragon, the enemy, tries to convince God that those who follow him are not good enough. And the dragon, just in the same way that he is not powerful enough to defeat Michael, is not powerful enough to defeat you and I, 
who follow in the path of the slain lamb. And we see it so beautifully and so clearly. Do you see? And it is a foreshadowing. It is a picture of what life is like. We've been talking about this again and again in Revelation. And how do we overcome the accuser, the dragon? Verse 11, we triumph through the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and then don't you like this? Actually, I don't in some ways. And through not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. There's a famous verse in the New Testament in the Gospels that Jesus says, do not fear him who is able to kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul. And here it's the same thing. The Christian is the one who has the perspective. I have already triumphed. But triumph for us now does not always look like, I don't know, what's your picture? Sitting on the beach, suntan, lotioning, reading your favorite book, drinking your favorite drink? It does not look like a life of ease. Victory looks like the word of our testimony and not loving ourselves so much so as to shrink suffering. We will be worthy to follow in the path of Christ. This is what Revelation 12 is teaching us. And so... You can read on and you can hear how God preserves the baby. You can read in verse 17 how the baby's offspring are those who are the people of God, who have kept God's, uh, who have kept God's commands and held fast to their testimony, and now it may, is made explicit about Jesus. But the answer here, the overarching theme here, is this idea that there are dark, evil, demonic, spiritual forces that are warring for our souls, and we are strong enough to overcome them. Not because we have great big guns on our biceps, not because we are great warriors, but because we do not love our lives so much so as to shrink from death, whosoever would save his life, would lose it. And whosoever would give his life will save it. Those who would follow Jesus, this comes from Matthew 16, 24 and 25, are those who will take up their cross and follow me. Because evil is present, and this is what it means to follow Jesus, and a reality where evil is coexisting, commingling with goodness and with God's people. The one who will overcome is not the one who says it will be easy, but the one who looks reality in its face and moves forward anyway. The second symbol is the beast out of the sea, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 through 10. A beast comes out of the sea, and again, in an apocalyptic style, it is a beast who has seven heads, ten horns, and on the horns are ten crowns, and on the heads is written a name that is blasphemous, that makes light of God. Seven horns, seven heads, and one of the heads has a fatal wound on it, a fatal wound that's been healed. And this beast is powerful, and he's been given power to conquer militarily, 
over the nations. And he uses his power to force the people of the earth to follow and to worship him. And the text tells us, this is beautiful, the text tells us in verse, chapter 13, verse 10, that those who make it through this will be those who have patient endurance and faithfulness. Another beast arises, the third sign, the beast out of the earth. And this beast arises out of the earth, and it exercises power and authority. And it has all kinds, it can do all kinds of miracles and wondrous signs. Because the enemy, these dark, demonic, spiritual forces represented by Satan are able to falsely imitate a lesser version of what he believes God does. You see? Mimic, imitate, but cheap, false imitations. And this beast uses his power and his authority to force the peoples of the earth, to worship the first beast. And he forces the people of the earth. He uses economic economic strength. As the first beast used military strength, the second beast used economic strength. And this is very famous. You've probably heard of this. The second beast forces all those who follow the beast to take the mark of the beast on either their forehead or their right hand. 666, which is kind of confusing, but the text itself helps us understand what it is. The number itself in Hebrew had a numerical quality to it, and it says this in the text, not the Hebrew part, but the number of the beast is 666. That's what the, 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 the amount equals up to. I've read that it's the same for Caesar and Nero. These are the same. They have the same numerical quality of 666. The mark of the beast is any system that goes against and runs contrary to the will and the desire of God, this mark. And the beast, the second beast out of the earth, forces humanity to take this sign. And anyone who does not have the mark of the beast will not be able to trade or sell. I think this is one of those uh, defining markers of dark, and evil spiritual forces trying to use their influence. And this is, I think, sometimes, too, why it is so hard to resist them. Dark, evil spiritual forces use manipulation and coercion to force people to do what they want, to to take away their freedom. I joke all the time, like, we're a church, we're not a cult, you you know, there's no Kool-Aid here, and if you don't want to, you don't have to stay. You know, I joke like this. Probably shouldn't. Anyway, what I mean, what makes this so difficult is the pathway of righteousness and those who really care about you will not force you, will not take away your freedom in the effort to force you to do their will. Now, if you're a teenager, don't read in this this too much. Your parents have the ability to force you to do some stuff. That's good. Go on, parents, and force your kids under your roof to obey your rules. I like that. But you notice when you get older, those people and those forces in your life that are trying to coerce you and force you through fear to do things are not your friend. This is one of the marks or the tools of the beast, the enemy, dark, evil, 
demonic spiritual forces. These are the first three signs. They focus in and around the dragon, the first beast out of the earth, or the sea, the first, the second beast out of uh, the second beast out of the, the earth. But now the tone changes, and we are reintroduced to a group of people that we have been introduced to before in Revelation chapter seven, the hundred and forty-four thousand. In chapter 14, verse 1 through 5, and this is the fourth image or symbol of the future. The 144,000 now are around the Lamb, and the Lamb is leading them. And it is a great army who are pure. And they are characterized by this in chapter 14, verse 4. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The fifth symbol arises, and it is a symbol of three angels who are both all going to proclaim a different thing. The three angels proclaim this. First, angel number one, worship God, for judgment is coming. Angel two, Babylon is fallen. We will look at Babylon in more detail next week. That is the whole point of next week's sermon, and I'm going to try to unpack and un, uh, uh, help you understand what Babylon symbolizes. But in a nutshell, Babylon symbolizes that same system that runs contrary to God's will. And so Babylon symbolizes the dark and evil spiritual forces and those who worship and follow those forces. And Babylon has now fallen. Judgment is coming. Babylon has fallen. Angel two. Angel three. Anyone who follows the beast will suffer its defeat. This, those who make it through this time, will need patient endurance and will need faithfulness to Jesus. The sixth image, harvesting the earth and trampling the winepress. The image is in Revelation chapter 14, through chapter 14, uh, verse 14 through verse 20. And the image is first of one who rides on a cloud who looks like the Son of God, our Son of Man. And in the hand of this one who looks like the Son of Man riding the cloud, a common reference to Jesus, he holds a sharp sickle. And first, he uses this ship this sickle symbolically, and he harvests all the grains. And then there's a second, an angel, who has a sharp sickle, and he harvests all the grapes. And they're thrown into the wine press and the harvest of God's wrath. And God judges evil. This imagery will be further explained in a couple weeks when we look at the final battle. And I'm going to talk about that in more depth. But if this image bothers you, this image, and it should bother you. Do you see what it says in verse 20? The trampling of the winepress of God's wrath and the blood flowed from his vengeance and his wrath 200 miles up to the horse's bridle. That should bother you. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But the image here is that judgment on evil is coming and it will happen. The seventh and final symbol is from Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And it is of seven angels with seven plagues. Notice that these seven angels hold seven plagues. 
And they are surrounded by all those who follow in the path of the Lamb, those who are the people of God. And they stand, those by the, the people of God, stand by a sea of glass. And the angels hold plagues in their hand. And the people of the earth begin to celebrate. Because when God's plagues are finished, evil will finally and forever be defeated. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And I've been thinking about it because I've just felt so heavy from my sermons. You know, like you might feel heavy, but I feel something after my sermons as well. I feel so heavy from my sermons. Revelation is heavy to go through. But I love Revelation chapter 15 because at the impending pouring out of the wrath of God, the people of God are celebrating This fills them with hope and with joy. Now, why is this? And why is it for us? It reminds me of a psalm. Uh, I have you reading it in your small groups this week. But it reminds me of a psalm that one of my seminary professors introduced this way. Imagine there's a bank robber. And imagine there's a banker. And imagine the police come. Yes? Yes? The coming of the police is joy for one, and it is misery for the other. Judgment means that evil will be finished. And so the people of God surrounding the sea of glass, which I don't even know what that looks like, are crying out in joy. Because their prayers have been answered. Remember Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where the martyrs under the altar in heaven cry out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you come and you avenge our blood? Not a prayer for personal vengeance, but a prayer for worldwide peace and justice. It's not a beauty pageant. But the desire is worldwide peace. It is for justice to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And for anyone who's gone through something that is unjust, whether it is born by people or born by nature, we long for things to be set right. And judgment is not a time that is filled with depression, but it is a time that is meant to be filled with hope and joy. For evil will no longer coexist and commingle in this world with goodness. They will be finally and forever separate. And into that reality, all who are right with the Lamb look towards with joy, and all who are not look with trepidation just like the banker and the bank robber at the coming of the police. And here they celebrate for you, God, are coming and they will get what they have chosen and what they deserve. Now, these seven signs introduce the seven bulls. I'm going to blast through these. 
The bowls should remind us again, similarly to the trumpets of the Egyptian plagues. The first bowl is poured out and it soars and boils on the people who do not have the mark of the seal of God on their foreheads. The second bowl of water is poured out and all the salt water on the earth is turned to blood. The third bowl, bowl is poured out and all the fresh water is turned to blood. And yet, after the third uh, bowl is poured out and the fresh water is turned to blood, the angel of God declares, you are just God. And they have killed the saints. And they are getting what they deserve. The fourth bowl is poured out and the sun gets so hot that fire comes down from heaven, scorching those who have the mark of the beast, who do not follow God, and they still refuse to repent. The fifth bowl is poured out, and the world is plunged into darkness, and still the people of the earth do not repent. And the fifth bowl is poured out, or the sixth bowl is poured out, and the Euphrates River is dried up so that the kings of the earth may all easily make their way to the plain of Armageddon, where the final battle will take place. And in the seventh bowl, it does. And God's judgment over evil is complete. We'll look at that final day a little more in Revelation 19, a couple weeks from now. But here, the sum total of the seven signs and the seven bowl judgments is to teach us one overarching lesson. And it's a lesson born out of answering the question, what happens to those who choose evil? And the answer is this, that those who follow in the path of the beast will suffer its defeat. Those who follow in the path of the beast will suffer its defeat. And here's what I want to say about this. This is probably as close as I get to hellfire and brimstone because I don't do that. Here's what I want to say about this. That there is coming a day when God will judge this world. And this world is made up of good and evil and God will separate those realities. And all those who choose God by placing their faith in Jesus will experience physical and eternal existence in a place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And all those who choose evil and who choose to have nothing to do with God will not be sent to a place that is an eternal torture chamber. But they will be sent to a place where God's will is no more, finally and forever. The physical, eternal reality where they experience existence with no even semblance of the reality of God. And they choose it because they chose to not want anything to do with God. And God, unlike the beast, does not force us to do anything. He does not force us to accept him. 
he freely and willingly offers himself for our salvation. And everybody needs the gift. And everybody can receive it. And everybody has the opportunity. Revelation, as we move into communion, is trying to teach us this morning through the bold judgments that evil will finally and forever be defeated. And as we move to communion, I want to orient your minds to one of the dominant themes of the communion table where Jesus in the upper room the night before he was betrayed spends some time with his disciples to instruct them in his last words before his crucifixion and he gives them the bread symbolically representing his body he gives them the, the wine symbolically representing his blood And he says, I want you to do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me until that day when I will celebrate it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. As we take communion this morning, and just before I pray, we do so as the people of God who expectantly wait for God to come again. for God to judge, for God to separate the realities of goodness and evil so that evil might be relegated to a place where it can no longer hurt the innocent and where God's justice will reign forever. And so think about that as you take the time this morning to come forward and to hold on to the symbolic representations of God's Christ's broken body and his shed blood. Let me pray for you. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see the reality of the beauty of what Christ has done for us on the cross. As we take communion this morning, we ask that you would supernaturally empower us with the grace, with your grace, that you would nourish our souls and that you would give us endurance to faithfully endure no matter what life is thrown at us until the Lord's prayer will one day be answered and when God's will will come to earth as it is in heaven. We are so grateful for what you've done and we acknowledge our belief that your victory is already achieved and it's just awaiting its final culmination. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As the music plays, I'm going to invite you all to come forward. Please come this way. Come down the